This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Yadi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally, the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Welcome, everyone. I hope you enjoyed dinner. And thank you to our amazing team, Del Cielo. The food is so delicious. I'm really excited for this conversation. Um, and so I, I thank you all for being here. And I, I want to give a special, um, just draw, draw special attention to the folks who are with us from home. Um, and we're grateful to you for sticking around. And also, uh, I know we have many, many people who are looking forward to hearing from you tonight, Tara, some in the room and some from far away. Um, so this story started for me a couple years ago when Melissa Balaban called me up and was like, oh my God, did you read Tara's book yet? And, uh, and I hadn't read it yet, but I do whatever Melissa tells me to. And so, um, I, I actually started listening to your book on Libby so I could, do pottery and hear you tell the story of your life at the same time so that I could create beauty in the world as you were teaching us how you have created beauty in your world. Um, I'm not saying my pottery is so beautiful, but your life has become so beautiful. And so um, it felt appropriate. Um, Tara, this, this book, this new book um, and your first book are really gifts. And um, I think that you said to me when we started talking about it that your gift was for, that your goal was for people who are struggling and who are suffering and who might feel that they're alone in the struggle to know that they're not alone because they might be able to see themselves reflected in the pages here. And you write in a way that is so accessible and funny and smart. Um, but what but what's in here, um, we shouldn't be dis distracted by, by the humor and by even by the language because what's in here is incredible depth um, and real heart. And we're going to get to that tonight. When I started marking it, I was color coding my stickies. And initially what I wanted to do is create a huge study sheet with all of the Jewish texts that bore out the same message that Tara Schuster um, brings through your life story. Um, but then I decided we'll just do it in conversation. So first, let me just say, I'm so thrilled to have you here with us, um, to have your, your father and your sister um, here with us too. It's really, uh, it's really an honor for us to get to do this together. And I'm so excited for the community to get to hear from you tonight. Um, so with that, Tara, I would love if you could give us um, your, uh, your on one foot spiel about the book. Tell us what this book is and why you needed to bring it into the world. And then we'll just jump right into the conversation. Um, first, I have to thank you, Rabbi Braus, for if you've read both of my books, you have been instrumental in my understanding of what it is to live wholeheartedly and with integrity. And I've, I've come to ECAR time and time again for my own mental health, to not to feel alone. This is the number one place I go when I'm depressed or I feel alone. Um, so thank you. And I, I thank Melissa Balaban for getting me involved. And there was a time when I would come to a car and I'd be like, I don't know anybody. Where should I sit? Like, I was single and Melissa and Marty and Brianna were like, hey, come sit with us. So I just want to acknowledge you for how welcoming you've been. Um, so I have two books and I think it'll help to tell you a little bit about the first one. So the first one is called Buy Yourself the Effing Lilies. And basically, I grew up in a house where things came to die. The pets, the plants, it was neglected. And it wasn't because there was a mystery hex, there was no malicious intent. It was just in our family, there weren't, there were no role models, there, there was no structure. And so how I left my childhood, the message was, I'm valueless. That's what I took from my childhood. And what that manifested into as an adult was extreme depression and anxiety and a need to prove myself, prove I had worth, that there was a reason I was here. 
And so I did really well at school. I went to Brentwood, I won all the awards, I went to Brown, I got all those awards. Then I kicked in the door at Comedy Central and I was one of the fastest climbing executives ever there. I ended as vice president of talent and development where I oversaw shows like Key and Peel. if you ever saw it. Um, I was the executive in charge of that show. And so I had this like big, stressful job at a young age and nobody knew that I was imploding inside. Nobody knew that I was dealing with suicidal ideation, that I was really struggling because I'd become so good at being like, yes, I'm the A student and the best employee here. Like, it was such a mask. And um, it might have kept going that way, except I drunk dialed my therapist and threatened to hurt myself. And the next morning, when I listened to her voicemails trying to find me, I realized uh, if I don't save my life, I might not have much more of a life to live. And as I look at all of you, the book is funny. Like, just so you know. <laughs> and like, I'm fine. I'm doing really well, so don't worry. This, this, this is gonna be okay. Um, and that morning, I just decided, you know what? I have to take full responsibility for my life. Even the things I'm not to blame for, I have to do it because no one's gonna do it for me. So I embarked in this journey of reparenting myself, giving myself the nurturing I hadn't received. And because I was a really intense student, I decided to make a Google Doc um, where I asked things like, what are values? What are principles? What are vegetables? Like genuinely, what are they? Which one should I be eating? And I did this for five years. Uh, at the end of five years, I felt stable which was a word I never thought would apply to me, stable, sometimes content, like it blew my mind. And that was when I realized I had an offering because I couldn't have been so alone. My experience couldn't have been so singular. There had to be other people dealing with this. And I wish I had had a book like this to be my friend, be my guide, let me know it was gonna be okay. And this new book, um, so everything, everything in Lily's ends up great. You know, it's like, I'm happy, um, I'm all healed, there's no more healing to do forever, I did it, yay, right? And then, of course, it's the pandemic and Comedy Central, um, I was completely identified with. I was so identified with Comedy Central that people introduced me, Tara Schuster, Comedy Central, like it was my married last name. You know, it, it was me, and they just unceremoniously laid me off. And it was the first time I realized, ah, corporations, they, they don't have loyalty to their employees. And it sent me on this journey to find out who I was, because I had, I had done enough work to become stable, but I didn't know if I had a soul, what my soul was, what did I actually want? because all of Lily's is a reaction to trauma. My, my life to that point had just been me like filling in holes, getting nurturing where I didn't, but beyond that, who would I be if I was my stardust self? And I talk a lot about the, in the book about how we are literally made of stardust. Like if you ever are like hating on yourself one day, just remember I am made of stardust the carbon in our muscles, the iron in our blood, and I wondered, can I tap into that stardust self? That self that can never be hurt is always miraculous, that each and every one of us have so that we're never alone, we're all made of the same thing. And I think that's why some of um, uh, the Judaism really ties into the book and some of these ideas, but um, yeah, this new book is really for people who are ready to find out who they are, you know, and, and what they really want, not what society wants, but what they really want. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Wow, well, one of the reasons that we were so eager to have you here is because we feel like there's kind of this five alarm fire happening with mental health crises in our, in our broader culture right now. And it's really hard for people to talk about it um, because we want to show everybody that we're okay, even when we're totally not okay. And you're, 
it's really brave to stand up and say like, hi, over here, totally not okay. And, and yet, I, as I'm reading you, I think, oh, this is the best friend that everybody's looking for. And even Tara writes love letters to the reader sometimes, like your friend and part-time lover, Tara. And because, um, because we need to not be alone. And I, and I know that your voice through this book has this impact on people's hearts. I mean, this is why thousands and thousands of people buy your books, because we, we are all struggling with aloneness and with different, um, with different levels of crisis in our aloneness. And you're saying, but I'm right here. Mm. Um, and so that's part of why this is such a gift and why in our Jewish community, we felt like we needed to bring you here on Shabbat, not just because we're proud that there's a, you know, a, a, an author in, you know, um, in our midst, but also because what you're writing about and what you're modeling in your writing is exactly the kind of conversation that we need to be having around the Shabbos dinner tables um, week after week. So, um, so I thank you for that. And thank you for bringing it here. Um, okay, I'm going to try to take us through some of the core ideas in the book that really jumped out at me. Um, and, the can, and so we'll, we'll start at the beginning of the book, but we can, I think we're, we'll end up jumping around. And I, I, would, I intend for us to talk for a little while and then for folks to jump in if it's okay with you and ask questions. And I know we've got some fans of your work here who are really uh, like big followers of, of you and so wanna, wanna ask some questions. So I was really struck, um, you described this a little bit in Lily's and you talk about it at greater length here um, in the dark, and is that okay? Glow in the dark. What, mm -hmm. what should I? How do yeah, I? Yeah, whatever Lily's you want. Dark. Okay. Um, you t you called your childhood home a, ca a haphazard construction zone, a haphazard construction zone, and you talked about one moment when your parents, when your father actually went, was trying to fix up the house yeah. because there was maybe a realization that this is a place where things go to die um, or break, and and so he was trying to fix the house and. It made me think about this text that is really one of my foundational texts that I bring to this community again and again and again over the years um, that comes from a, a Hasidic rabbi called Nisibot Shalom. And he teaches that, um, he teaches that it's like, you, you have to imagine a house that's built on a rotten foundation. And what happens is um, cracks start to appear in the walls but we don't want to be in a house with cracks in our walls. And so what do we do? We paint over them so that nobody can see. But then the cracks come back and they, they widen. And so then, um, you know, we plaster over the, the walls, thinking that we can solve it that way. And he says, but it's all, there's, there's no way that you can fix the, the wounds in this house until you actually address that it was built on a rotten foundation. And so he says the same is true for our bayit ruchani, for our spiritual homes, that we see a little problem and we think, oh, I'm just going to band-aid over that little problem. And actually, we can never really heal until we're willing to go to the depths and realize what's broken at the heart of this project and how can we help repair it. And I feel like it's a metaphor not only for what, what was happening and not happening in that construction zone growing up, but also for what you've done here that your whole project of uncovering this narrative and telling the story in this way is really you showing us that it's terrifying to think that we should have to take down the whole house to build a healthy foundation, but it is possible to do that and then to rebuild something beautiful on top. And so I wanted to share that text and that image with you and see if you can reflect a little bit um, from the book or from, you know, just from life about what it means for you to be willing to go down to the foundation rather than continue to just paint and plaster and hope that nobody from the outside world can see where the brokenness lies. Absolutely. That, that image really resonates with me because I, I did grow up in a house that was quite broken. And I, I think I was just afraid to deal with any of my issues. I was afraid that if I didn't blunt it out, so I was addicted to weed. I was drinking a lot, I was using my status and my job as a stand-in for my value. I was doing everything I possibly could to distract from the pain I was actually in because I was afraid that if I started to touch it, it would ruin my life, that it would be too hard, that it, the floodgates would open and I wouldn't be able to deal with it. 
And I get a lot of DMs from readers who tell me terrible things have happened to me and I'm too afraid to deal with them. And now what I know on the other side is the problem is when you don't deal with things, right? Uh, because that which you do not deal with deals with you. It deals with you. And unfortunately, it also deals with everybody you love because you act differently when you have real healing to do. And now on the other side, my life is way easier. Like I thought it would have been easier to ignore mm -hmm. all the pain, all the problems, but actually that life was miserable. And it, it led to, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but having just an inner critic in my head at all times telling me, uh, you're ugly, you're unlovable, you didn't do that right, your boss doesn't like you. Like, that's an unpleasant place to live. And I just didn't want to live that way anymore. And so I thought if I can get to my bedrock wounds, and I use journaling, and, and I bring that up because it's a free form of therapy available to all of us tonight. You know, I just unloaded into my journal the things I couldn't say to other people. Because by the way, I'm sharing with all of you, I never shared with my friends. I never talked to anybody about any of this until very recently. So a journal, I find, is a very safe home. It's a safe space for you to say what needs to be said and get to know yourself so that you can even see where you need to excavate and where you need to nurture. But like truly, if you take anything away from this, it's such a better life on the other side. It, it, it was horrible. But like anybody, any like self-help expert who's like, I can do this for you in two weeks and it's gonna be great, you know, is obviously a liar. The, the work is really, really hard and it frees you. It liberates you from the things that used to pain you. Mm. It's really powerful. I, I mean, and then to think that the journey from Egypt to the promised land is not a straight line, but instead is a kind of a zigzag from triumph to, to struggle, to triumph to struggle. Because even after, the, after Lilies came out and you're this best-selling author and everybody knows your name and you have you know, so many people tracking your every move on Instagram, and then you're driving on a desert road one night and you just, you know, fall apart. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting and important for us to also, see, like, to see the trajectory. What I'm saying is this is a gift. This book is a gift because you're mapping for us the trajectory of a journey toward healing. And, and we might ha we all have this perception, A, that it's too dangerous to start to take down the house because then you'll be houseless, right, while you're trying to clean out the, the rotten foundation. And what if you can never rebuild? And then we have this fantasy that once we rebuild, we'll be okay. And so it's even more powerful that, like, we're not, we're still yeah. not okay, right? And there's yeah. still going to be moments of incredible struggle, even on the other side, you know, even once you have all of this self-awareness. I was actually very afraid of that. Uh, so when I was, you know, I was in the press a lot and doing a lot of talks about how, like, how healed I am. You know, I'm doing so much better. And then I can tell a little bit more of the story of being on the road. Yeah. Um, I was laid off. I was single. I was living in my apartment with no family around at the beginning of the pandemic. And that was my particular kind of hard. But I had always had a job, like in high school, summers. I, I was always working, 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 so distracted with a schedule. And for the first time in my life, nobody was telling me what to do. And that space, that space allowed for my deepest traumas to come bubbling to the surface and I did not know how to quell them. Mm -hmm. So I, did, I made a really wise decision. I said, okay, um, I'm just gonna move to Arizona. I, I'm gonna move to Arizona and I'm gonna help in the 2020 election because that's important. Like that will give me meaning, that's gonna save me. And maybe 48 hours, I packed up my Vitamix, um, a, a bag of books I would never read, and set off into the desert. And it was on the desert road where I had the worst dissociative episode of my life. And if you haven't had a dissociative episode, it makes you full body sick. It's like it would be better for everything inside of you to come out than to feel how you feel in that moment. 
And as I was driving down the road, I had less and less control. You know, I, I could see my hands, but they didn't look like my hands. They looked like they were floating off of the steering wheel. And I was going faster and faster, and I, I wasn't me. I absolutely was not in control of me. And it, as fate would have it, my therapist called me and said, um, are you safe? And I said, yeah, of course. I'm just speeding a little. Of course I'm safe. She, she was like, having a dissociative episode while speeding down the highway is not safe. You need to pull over. And it was the first time in my life where I realized I need to pull over. I have to stop, stop fixing, stop trying to fix anything. Just stop and pause and be right here. And it was in the Mojave Desert and it was late at night because I had not planned well for the journey. And as I looked up at the sky, you know, here in LA, we don't see the stars, right? So as I looked up, it was like a glitter field all around me. And as I looked at those stars, I wondered, can I be like that? Can I shine even in bleak circumstances? Because man, if you remember back to October of 2020, it was the bleakest I had ever seen. And I was like, when are we gonna exit the darkness? Can we shine? And it, another thought I had was, no one ever criticizes stars. No one's ever like, that star didn't get its to-do list done, right? Like, no one's ever like, that star didn't get that promotion and now I think less of them. In a completely uh, fractured world, we all can agree that stars are awesome, right? Right? <laughs> stars are the bomb. Let's hear it for stars. They're great, right? And that's in us. Every time I get lost, I remember that thing that we all agree is awesome and miraculous and comes from the beginning of time, that thing actually is present in all of us. And really, the journey is not to become somebody else. It's not to take on somebody else's mantras or beliefs or whatever. It's to get back to that stardust self and let it glow, mm -hmm. to clear away everything that has settled on it and made it dusty and rusty and, and clean it away, which is so hard, mm -hmm. and let it shine. Beautiful. Um, I, I, you know, I, we started by mentioning that your family's here with you tonight, and you speak um, a lot about your family in the book. And so for people who've read the book, maybe you're surprised um, that Tara's family is, that Tara's father's here. And, um, and so I wonder if you can, I, I'm thinking about the way that this book has also created space for healing, not only internally, but also um, but also for you with others. And so if you're willing yeah. to share, I would love to, I would love to hear you reflect on that. Yeah. Um, so in the book and sort of what I've described, obviously I didn't have a fun childhood. And for a very long time, I was angry and coping with all of these things. And um, it got to a point so I haven't spoken to my mom in, I don't know, 15 years or something. And it got to a point that with my dad, we didn't speak for two years because at the beginning of COVID, I just thought, I can't keep parenting my parents. I can't keep dealing with this. This is my time. The world is shut down. I am going to deal with my darkest trauma. And I did. <laughs> I really worked hard. I basically took a break from life just to go to therapy, try different things like EMDR, you know, I, I, like every kind of trauma therapy you could possibly imagine and enact it in my, in my life. Like I um, moved in with my best friend who had, has three kids and tried to be like a bonus mom for them. <laughs> like I like Mary Poppins into there to, to see what, family was like, like what it, what it would mean to be happy when you came home. You know, I, I went out and experimented with all these things. And then I found out my dad had COVID. My sister called me and told me my dad had COVID. And I just was like, end of break. I am rushing to his side. There's no way I'm not going to talk to my dad right now. And what I found out was that for the preceding two years, my dad had been in therapy. And the dad I met after he did the work was a completely different person. It was his actual stardust self. And 
I never thought that I would feel unconditional love. I just thought that wasn't in the cards for me. But my dad did the work. At the age of 78, he decided, I'm going to change. I have a reason to change. He wanted to have a relationship with me. And so it was the hardest boundary I've ever made, right? Who wants to, who, who wants to make that choice to cut out a family member? It's like, thank you. The most taboo thing you could possibly do is not talk to your parent. It was a hard boundary to make. But I don't know that my dad and I would have, we have a real relationship now. My, my dad has shown up for me in ways no one else has. And it's given me a sense of safety. You know, I grew up just feeling unsafe. And I thought it would always be that way because if those wounds are so primal and if you are programmed like in a certain way, well, then how can you ever really fix it? If it happened that young, how can you really fix it? There's a lot you can do, but it is a gift and a miracle that my dad did what he did. Uh, it has healed me. I think it has healed him. I think it's released him. And now we have a real relationship. And he said, when I, you know, I said, I'm going to be the car, I'm going to be speaking. I'm going to be talking about the book. Are you okay with that? And he said, whatever stage you're on, I'm there. So thank you, Dad. <laughs> I think there are, there are at least two miracles here. Um, one is um, that at 78, you can totally transform your life. And um, we believe that tshuva is possible, that people can change. Um, and, and that's true at any age. And it, it, it requires a, a fierce will to change. Yes. And so that's the first miracle. And the second is that your heart was open to accept the change and it changed you too. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing that. Um, and it's really, it's really beautiful. Um, thank you for being here, Robert. Thank you. Um, so I, so I want to talk about boundaries and then we'll talk about God a little bit and then we'll open it up. Um, because you spoke about the boundary of creating distance here and in the book, you talk about boundaries, actually, with regards to your father also. When there's one night when you're in a restaurant together and you walk in and you say, if you're going to be like this, I'm out. I set a boundary for myself. And, um, and it made me think about something that Brene Brown said some years ago that I think about a lot. She, um, she asked 4,000 people, I think, um, to name the most compassionate person in their lives. And then she went and interviewed those 4,000 most compassionate people to try to discern what it was about them that was, uh, wh where were the similarities between these people? So what makes a person compassionate? And what she realized was it wasn't gender, it wasn't age, it wasn't income. It was actually the people who had the greatest boundaries were the most compassionate because they were able to say, this is where my line is and I can be full of love up to my line. If you cross my line, we're done. And so you do, if you have boundless compassion, like for everyone, you're going to end up being resentful and being and starting and be, be turning cruel because you're going to feel like people are stepping on me and he's doing the thing. I told him not to do that thing. And I, you know, and I feel so affronted. But if you set a boundary, then you can allow yourself to, to, to tap into real compassion. And I felt that throughout the book, actually, it felt like part of your journey toward healing was establishing, affirming your own dignity and saying, I have a right to create my own safety here. Yes. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about boundaries for mm -hmm. us and, and help us understand how does one, as a, um, this is not my strong suit, establishing good boundaries. <laughs> um, and so I, I'm sure I'm not alone here. So, um, so how do, for people who struggle with this, how do we actually get clear on, it's not, it's not mean or cruel to say, well, I can go this far and not further than that and have that be perceived as the act of love that it is, both self-love and love for the other. Absolutely. I, and, and there are two types of boundaries. So in both of my books, I have really easy to follow rituals. It's all about creating structure, things you can go back to again and again that are comfortable, that fill you up, that are reliable, uh, 
silly things like a gratitude practice, like moda'ani every morning, journaling. Having consistency makes boundaries just within your day. You know, where you say, this is really important to me and I'm gonna hold this space, I'm gonna hold this time because it's important to me. Other things are important, but I must have this. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one thing is con containing time for yourself and, and realizing how precious that is, you know? And I'm actually thinking of the Sabbath right now and the, what does he say? The, um, the palace in time? Yeah, the palace in time, exactly. Um, so that's one side of it. And then the second side is what I find is people don't wanna create boundaries because they don't wanna be mean people. They wanna be really nice to other people. And what they don't realize is that if you don't create a boundary, you are stopping that other person from growing. Mm. It is actually not kind to let somebody walk all over you again and again and again because that person will never know any better. Mm because you didn't have the bravery to say no. And you yourself suffer. And you yourself begin to resent that person and not wanna be with that person. And your love gets grinded down. So who exactly were you nice to? And I think we need to start seeing this as we can all change. Change isn't bad. Asking for what you need isn't bad. And in fact, if you aren't honest, it, it does a disservice to everyone in your life and to you. I, I, I really, now that I've told everyone that I'm bad at boundaries, I realize because you spoke of Heschel's and the Sabbath that I actually am very good at some boundaries. And, and I think that now that I think of it, I mean, we have a very strong Shabbat practice and we don't break it. And, and the world understands, like she doesn't answer the phone on Shabbos. And I think people aren't offended if they call me and I don't answer, and if they are, it doesn't affect me. It, do, it doesn't hurt me because this is our practice. And so I think it's it's interesting that you say this because I, I think it, it's, it is borne out also in my own life in ways that I hadn't even put together until you said it. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, okay, so I want to talk about... Um, the, about speaking of Heschel, about Tara's quest for God. So yeah. there's a um, there there's this really beautiful through line um, throughout the book, and then one chapter where you talk about it specifically about like taking this metal pipe and smacking the jacaranda tree, and you say, "Are you there, God?" And and you talk about this like this crushingly solitary feeling, except for one saving grace. If I stood in the right position, my voice would resound in the canyon. The echo made me feel less desolate, like maybe there was something bigger, something more resonant that was paired with my own little voice. And you said, I don't believe in God. I know God. Yeah. I feel God, you say. And I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about your yearning for God and the way the 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 role that God plays in the journey to of discovery, especially um, in mental wellness. Absolutely. The connection between spiritual wellness and mental wellness. Absolutely. I, I wanted a God in my life, I think, for obvious reasons. I wanted somebody who loved me and took care of me and was a witness to my life. And I really wanted to feel it. I really wanted this God thing to work out. I, like, went on birthright. You know, I did all the things looking for God. And it actually wasn't until I took a tour of Yad Vashem and I... If you, if, how many people have been to Yad Vashem? So do you know that the living room, in the, you're walking through and there's just like a normal person's living room. Can I just pause for one yeah, second? Yeah. So Yad Vashem is a Holocaust oh, yes. memorial in Jerusalem. Um, yeah, and um, it's a, I, I don't even know how to describe the impact that it has, but it's just a normal living room. It looks like it could be mine. It has a beautiful big desk on it. And I realized, wow, um, this could have been me. This could have been my desk. The Holocaust happened 75 years ago. That's like a blink of an eye. This is, this is present with us now. And as I thought about that, I thought about, well, so I'm connected to all Jews of all time. Like we all are sharing in this story. And as I thought about my connection to other people, 
I really had one of those moments where it's just your whole body, you know, I felt like a calm bolt of energy came to me and I realized I don't need to be looking for God because God is looking at me. You are looking at me. We all are connected. There's divinity in each one of us. And this God that I was searching for, which I thought was a dude because it was 1990 in LA, you know, like I didn't need him. What I needed to do was recognize that in each of us, there is something so beautiful. I, I don't think we stop enough to just recognize all the faces that are passing you. Those are whole lives that have been through so much and we just kind of like rush around. Uh, you, uh, your story you were telling earlier, moving away from people who we think are problems and not recognizing God is in us, right? And so in Yad Vashem, of all the weird places to find God, I, I felt it. And so now I never have to deal with logic. Like, I never have to logic myself about God because I know in God. I feel in God. I don't need to know the story even to know that God is with me in a compassion, as a compassionate witness mm. who can never leave my side. It's so beautiful. In that chapter, you talk about two places where you came to this understanding of God. One was Yad Vashem and one was Disneyland. Yes. And you talk about how in Disneyland you sort of notice there, you have this moment, and maybe others have had this moment where you just realize, oh my God, everyone's different. And Melissa's already envisioning the whole um, source sheet that I would have done here if we had, if we actually went the other the other route here. But, but you know, my, like, and uh, you're all all of my core Torah manifests in your book in different ways. But the idea that every single human being is unique in this world, that when we just talked about this in Limudim the other day with the kids, that um, it says in the Mishnah that when, um, when, we, when, when man stamps out a coin, um, there's one mold and every single coin is exactly the same. But when God stamped us out with the mold of Adam HaRishon, the first person, we all came out different. Mm. And it's a testament to God's greatness that none, no two among us are, are the same. And I feel like you came to that awareness, for, you know, a, a, an emotional awareness and a spiritual awareness just by being present enough to look around and actually see. And that's, an, that's truly incredible. I can actually envision it right now. I was with my sister. We have an annual trip to Disneyland. I think we've been doing it for like 19 years, which is kind of embarrassing, but we do it every year. And I remember we were walking down Pirates of the Caribbean, like walking to it, and I just saw everybody's faces and was like, wow, everyone here is different. How did that happen? Like, I know we're mostly the same inside, but all these faces, all these cool things, how is that possible? Yeah, beautiful. And then you, you conclude ultimately that it's not just that God is present in the vastness around us, but also inside. And yes. I, think that, I think that that leap for some is harder to make in this direction and for some in this. Yeah. Um, but, you, but you say, can I read you this quote? At, at your core, you are totally pure and totally good. Stop thinking about yourself as some individual person with faults who's made so many mistakes and recognize that your most essential stardust self has no faults, no problems, and is enough. And you talk about the prayer that we say every morning that actually reminds us of this, that, that God, the soul that you put in me is, is the purest soul. And um, we're just a few blocks away from Beit Shuva, this incredibly holy place um, on Venice, where many of our, many people in our community um, have been through Beit Shuva and have loved ones who've been, uh, who've been, who are in Beit Shuva and have been through it, and also who've been, who are rabbis at Beit Shuva in the Ikar community. And, um, and this is the, their core text. Mm. God, the soul you put in me is holy. Oh, I'm sorry. Beit Shuva is a Jewish recovery center, um, not far from here, where literally, from all around the country, people are like sending their loved ones and themselves to um, to go through the recovery process, and so that prayer is the is the very heart of it. I mean, it's seen as the great antidote to addiction because mm. and and to shame spiraling and to all the violence that we do to ourselves. To just start the morning by saying, "God, 
the soul you have given me is pure. And we say it again and again and again until we believe it. That's blowing my mind because I did that completely separately from knowing it was a thing. I, I wanted to believe that I had a good soul because I didn't think I did. And I thought, and maybe you can relate to this, that I wasn't enough just as I was, that there was some fault in me, something was bad. And what I've learned over the years is you can really fake most emotions. Like I, will, I was not a grateful person. I've kept a gratitude list for the past 10 years. I've written like 50,000 things I'm grateful for. That repetition, it gets in your body. Sometimes it's the doing that actually makes you believe. And I was on a Jewish meditation retreat and uh, with Rob James, uh, Jacobson Meisels, so I know some of you know. Um, yes, he's amazing. And it was on the chant sheet, Elohai, Neshama, Shanatata, Tehorahi. And I, I just thought, if I can just tell myself that I have a good soul, mm. maybe I'll have a good soul. And it's what I go to every time I feel imposter syndrome, every time I'm critical of myself, mm. every time I compare myself to somebody for some odd reason, I go back to, wait a minute, what matters? And I have a good soul. That's like, that's enough. Beautiful. That's beautiful. I'm going to, I wonder if folks, if we have a couple questions from people, and then I want to close by um, sharing one, one passage from the book, which I would love if you would read um, for us. So what's on your mind, people? And I know we have some people who drove from far distances <laughs> to be here, too. Yes, Ellen. Can you, can you, yeah, thank you. Um, my name is Ellen, and a lot of you know that my son, where does this go? Here? Yeah, yeah. There? Okay. No, on your elbow, usually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You got it. <laughs> um, passed by suicide. And listening to you talk in the beginning, I was going to leave because hmm. I didn't know where you were going. So I guess my question is, when you were at your rock, when, can I just talk like this? Oh. This? Yes. Okay. Thank you. When you were at your rock bottom, what was that instant that sparked you to pop up, not yeah. down? Yeah. And first off, I'm incredibly sorry to hear that. Thank you. And, um, for me, it was I had been in a relationship and it had ended poorly and it had, for whatever reason, like spun me out into a very terrible place. And I was actually walking in Westridge in Brentwood and I was just sobbing. Like if God was looking down, it was ridiculous. I was like white girl in Lululemon crying out like, God help me please, you know? And I really, at that moment, that was the moment where I was really considering um, taking my own life. And it was like some force. And I think the force was I remembered my sister. And when I remembered her, it was enough to pull me back. And it like punctured the spell I was in. In. And it came to me that what I needed to hear was that I was loved and I was needed. And so I went out to all my friends and I said, I just need you to tell me over and over and over again that I am loved and I am needed. And my community did that for me. And it was horrible. Like the three months of that were excruciating. And I think what people don't understand is that it is physically painful to be in that s state of mind. It's like you want to end the suffering, not necessarily your life, but the, the really horrible suffering. Um, and so that was, it was connection. It was love, remembering that at that moment. And I was lucky. I was lucky to remember that. 
And thank you for asking your question. That was very brave. I just, um, just want to say that um, Jordan, Ellen's beloved son, was a healer in the world. And he took so much of the world's suffering into mm. his system. And he gave so much love out into the world. And he also knew that he was loved very deeply. And when you were writing about the, the suffering in yeah. this book, I was thinking about Jordan. I was thinking about what it means that even though you know you're loved so deeply, that sometimes the suffering is just too much to withstand. And so I always hope that Jordan's memory will continue to be a blessing as it is and as it will always be. Um, do we have another? Do we have another question? Maybe about Comedy Central, Key and Peele. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> you don't. You don't have to. I really promise the books are funny. <laughs> like it's got blurbs from Chelsea Handler. Like funny people think yeah. it's funny. So. <laughs> it is. All right. So we'll take. We'll take one more. Um, no, I was just gonna. Make, I was gonna make a comment. Yes, I drove out here to pray. And yes, the books were really, really, really great. I felt like I was older reading this, so I felt motherly for you. Funny, funny books, but very moving. I cried. Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for, for driving from Redondo Beach on a Friday and for being a subscriber to my newsletter. <laughs> Um, I'm gonna. I want to just ask if you if you'll read one particular passage. It's just a part of a paragraph, and then we'll wrap together. Um, but this is about loneliness, which is something I've been thinking and writing a lot about, and also um, anxiety and depression, and the ways um, in which these labels can be incredibly hurtful, but also can be very liberating for us. And I think that the clarity that you have here is. Um, it's really important for folks. So it also give you a, just a sense of the tenor of the book. So yeah. if you don't mind, like starting with I recognize. If, I'm going to where? If you're willing. I mean, right around there. Today, I okay. Um, I recognize that having labels like anxiety and depression can be life-giving. They can point the way toward proper treatment, solutions, and a basic understanding of ourselves. But we are in real danger when our diagnosis, or our self-given diagnosis, as is often the case, becomes a part of our identity and an excuse for why we can't help ourselves. You don't call someone with breast cancer cancerous. They're not entirely made of cancer. Lab labeling the whole of a person with any one diagnosis not only misses the complexities of being a human, not only reduces the entirety of you to one phrase, but it also robs us of our agency to change or help ourselves. I realize, sorry. Oops. This passage is actually, it starts here, but it goes on next page. So I'm just gonna share with you the, one, the, the, the piece that I in particular wanted to know, um, that, that I wanted the community to hear, um, which if I, I can't find it, so I'm gonna just read it here, because I, oh, if, uh, if I really thought about it, had I not, is it okay if I read yeah, your words? Please. Had I not felt so solitary for so long, you're talking about the pain of loneliness, anxiety, depression. Had I not felt so solitary for so long, I probably would never have become a writer. I probably wouldn't have had the need to feel seen, to be heard, to, to want people who had endured similar experiences to feel supported by me. I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have the indefatigable desire to connect to others, not only through writing, but through my synagogue, my meditation community, the friendships, um, uh, and, I, oh, and I maintain them like they're precious gems. My loneliness was not inherently bad. It had given me some of the most secret, sacred things in my life. My loneliness, I could see now, was my superpower. And I love this passage so much because it feels like once you're on the other side of this building project, when you turn the construction, uh, the haphazard construction zone of your childhood into a teardown, which then you build back up, you also 
are able to recognize on the other side of it that not only are you healing, but you're so much stronger than you ever would have been Absolutely. had you not experienced this journey. And that includes experiencing the suffering, yeah. that all of that is part. And I don't believe that God makes us suffer so that we can learn these lessons, but you experience this trauma. And on the other side of the healing, there's, there's a whole new life. And now you have this, um, like the, these gifts that you share with the world through your writing and through your speaking, which is actually helping all of us heal. And that's quite extraordinary. Um, I, you say in the, you know, it's, um, you, you say at one point in the book that you say to somebody who's despairing, know that the mystery of your life is still unfolding. And I feel that, um, reminding us that we are still a work in progress is so critical because I know that we can feel like we're at the end and you're saying this might be the end of something, but it's not the end of you. There's another journey to begin in this moment. And that's an incredibly powerful Torah that I hope we can all take in tonight. Um, If it's okay, I would love if we can close by singing Elohai Neshama. So I'll tell you the words again, so you can all join um, Elohai Nishama, which means Elohai is like Eloheinu. It means my God, but not Eloheinu is our God. Elohai is mine. Elohai Nishama Shinatata B, the soul that you gave me, Tehorahi, is pure. So we'll say it, um, we'll chant it together for a moment and then we'll, we'll close. Elohai Nishama Shinatata B, Tehorahi Elohai Nishama Shinatata Bi Tehorahi Elohai Nishama Shinatata Bi Tehorahi Elohai Nishama Shenatata Bi Tehorahi Tara, thank you. You are such a gift. We're so honored to have you in our community and so blessed to have your voice in this world. We thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I K A R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.